When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where we take what's happening in the world today and try to give some answers from Holy Scripture and from church tradition and a lot of other stuff too. Thanks for joining. The Saga of Job uh, is the oldest book of the Bible in that it witnesses to a time that is not really covered in biblical history, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's often considered the oldest book of the Bible, I think mainly because that's really the only way to understand the book. If you look at the book of Job as a how-to manual for what goes on behind the scenes in God's kingdom, in God's world that God made, I think you'll come up short. If you come up with, if you look at Job through a lens of uh, we are trying to figure out how this guy did it so we can do it like Job, I think we'll come up short as well. To me, Job is the ultimate expression of what it means to be human, the frustration, the sadness, the grief, the trauma, the unrelenting questions that we ask of God as we look up at a silent heaven and say, why? Why did this happen to me? What are you doing, God, in my life through all this stuff that's happening? And so I think that for that reason, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, some have framed it even more dramatically than that by saying the beginning of Job and the end of Job are later editorial add-ons. And what that means is that in order to, ex- we were given, handed down generation to generation, these poems about human suffering, these poems about human suffering, questioning why God, what do I do? Where, what, why did this happen to me? All this poetry that has come down to us through history, somebody decided to turn it into a story and they wove together the various poems into a comprehensive narrative with a preamble or prelude or prologue where this court case in heaven happens where all these divine beings, angels, demons, whatever, are parading before the throne room of God and There comes the accuser, the Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him. And he has this conversation with God. And they make a wager about Job. And so then all the stories and all the unfolding of the drama with Job and his friends and his wife and all those other events are given that frame, that this is the context for these poems that have been written about grief and these laments about human suffering and why human suffering happens. And the ending of Job is also added on there to sort of tie it up in a nice bow to explain the journey from real dumbfounded questioning of the heavens uh, to then realizing there's a reward at the end for those who struggle and suffer. And if you do that, if you look at the book of Job that way, 
I think there's some interpretive value to that in that ultimately the contents of the book of Job, the poems, the poetry in the book of Job are really, really, really hard to sort out uh, what is just the way God works in the world or just the way that we feel about it. For instance, Job's friends are often given voice in the story and they have a worldview that Every time you screw up, every time you do something wrong, or maybe even someone in a previous life or some ancestor of yours, you've got to pay for that. So every time you suffer, every time a child dies, every time you lose a job, every time you have a breakup, every time something bad happens to you, that is the direct result of a karma, of karma that's biting you in the ass, that's come back to haunt you, that's payback time. Um, And that's what Job's friends say about Job's suffering. Over and over again, they say the same thing, that the way that God God works in the world is, is like a court of law, of justice. You do this bad thing, you get this bad result every single time. So Job, you've got to figure out what you did, and you've got to make it right so that you can stop this cycle of, God's judgment of karma, whatever that is. And yet, that is not the point of the book. Job's friends, as well-meaning as they are, are wrong. And Job knows this. And Job constantly reminds them that they are wrong, that he's not done anything. And so, if we look at Job as the beginning and the end being added on later by an editor helping us make sense of the book, That makes a lot of sense because once you know that God made a deal with the devil to torture Job, uh, Job's meaningless sufferings have a meaning. And the meaning isn't a real good one. It's that God made a deal with the devil to test Job like a, a rat in a laboratory. And is that really what human suffering is? Is God as the scientist putting us in a maze with peanut butter at the end and rat traps along the way. And we step on one, we don't learn the right lessons, we step on another and it hurts really badly. Is that um, what is happening in the universe? C.S. Lewis takes this question up in his book, The Problem of Pain. But sometimes it does feel like we are just rats in a maze, in God's maze that he created, being tested and tortured and rewarded along the way. And is that all human suffering is? It's just simply God experimenting with us like he does with Job and the devil. I think um, for me, the way I read Job is through the lens of Job. Job being the source of this material. Whoever Job was, we don't really know. He's not a historical figure that shows up in any other place in the Bible. But Job um, seems to have recorded this. Um, He is the main character in the story. Maybe someone wrote about him, I don't know, but he would have had to say these things uh, for us to know who he was. Unless he's a complete work of fiction, which, um, you know, when you think about it, all fiction is really rooted in reality. Not always the... um, you know, whether there was a knife fight or a gunfight or an escape from a burning tower, not those fictional details, but the human feelings about 
the events that happen in every movie, every TV show, every novel, even though it's fiction, they are rooted in real people's lives as they write these stories, writing people's dialogue and words coming from their own selves. And so even if Job is a work of fiction, and he never really existed in the way we think of people existing, uh, all of all the things he says are rooted in everybody's human experience. Every one of us has said something like Job has said throughout our lives. And we've also probably said stuff like his three friends, um, including his later friend, Eliphaz the Timnite. Um, between his four friends and his wife and others who have commentary on Job, um, we've all been there too. We've all been Job's friends one time or another. So I hope you can see yourself in this book as we read it. We are introduced to the the trauma of Job by setting up really an idyllic scene like like a movie where you have the little country cabin, you know, gym boys bringing the cows in from the, the pasture, putting them in the fence in the evening, Ma's cooking on the big kettle, Pa just shot a deer and he's bringing it in to carve up and roast over the fire. The kids are playing with a little wooden sawhorse toy. And that's the sort of opening scene of the movie. And then these riders come in and they're on horses and they've got black hats on and they're wearing guns. And and that's what happens in the book of Job. This scene opens where this idyllic scene where Job and his kids are seven sons and three daughters. They're, they're rich, they're wealthy, they're blessed by God. They're they have parties and get-togethers at their houses, and Job is very concerned with their karma. He's very concerned with them breaking the law of God. And so he makes sacrifices often for his children, so that even if they curse God in their hearts in some way, somehow, that this will be covered. So Job has covered all the bases. He's done everything right. Unless we see him as a do-gooder or some sort of, you know, perfectionist or something, I don't think that's how Job is presented. Job is presented as someone who is really walking in the righteousness of God. He's doing everything right. We see echoes of the whole temple structure and tabernacle and all the other ways that God later reveals to God's people of the way of following God. But Job is an earlier version of that, a very simple version of that. His concern is that his children curse God in their hearts. And, I don't, and this is the theme throughout the book. What does it mean to curse God? Does it mean to, to not have a conversation with God where you're angry? No, because Job does. Job has many conversations with God in this book where he's very angry. He's very upset. And that he does um, pour out his feelings to God and to other people about God. So it doesn't mean that. Um, What it means to curse God is to really turn one's back on God, to stop having that conversation with God, to stop seeing that there is a relationship there that should be worked on, maintained, and spoken to. It is really a complete and utter disregard for God, to curse God, to say ultimately that God is not good, but God is evil that God is destructive, that God is weak, God is powerless, God is unable to help me when I'm suffering. That seems to be 
maybe a good definition of what, uh, what it is to curse God. Then this throne room scene where Satan and God make a deal um, when they, as they look at Job. And then all this fire rains down. Like I said, the opening scene, the riders ride in. His children all die. Uh, we don't have to be Job to know how that feels. Um, we can feel that today because there ain't no difference between Job and us when it comes to the most precious people in our lives being violently killed and murdered or even destroyed in a natural disaster. Job does what people did in that time. He tears his robe, shaves his head, falls on the ground, and he worships. And he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. What does he mean by that? He's really talking about the earth and his mom at the same time. That he came into this world born from his mother naked with nothing and helpless and unable to do anything about the world around him. Um, And he's going to go back into that womb someday. This womb is more than just his mother. It is the earth itself. It is all creation. And he will go back into that creation someday. He will go back into the dirt from where he came. And he reflects on this later in the book as well. Um, That that was where he started life and that's where he'll end life. Um, So ultimately, all the stuff that he's lost was all stuff that uh, he never really had anyway. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. The problem is, is that God did did do something wrong to Job on any level of human experience. This deal with the devil is wrong in a way that we can probably fully understand that. If someone makes a plot against you, a pact to try to ruin your life, um, that's pretty wrong. What what the narrator is saying, though, about Job is that um, ultimately... Job holds on to his belief that somewhere in the heavens, somewhere in the throne room of God, somewhere in this mysterious experience with God that he's had throughout his life, one of obligation, of sacrifice, and and being devoted and praying, somewhere deep inside that mystery of God is some part of goodness, some essential goodness that he can trust, that he can count on, that will be there for him when all is truly lost. Even though all is lost right now, Job holds on to that seed of hope deep down. He can barely speak it. He's got his face in the dirt, and yet he still can witness to this. And this, this, is, um, this is what it is to be human, ultimately, to live amidst the ruins of our lives and the lives of those around us, or to watch and hear what it means to be human for other people on this planet and the struggles and suffering that they experience. Things like um, huge things like wars and um, genocide and and very small hurts like uh, families going through conflict, uh, breakups, betrayals, fraudulent behavior, you know, you name it, all the way down to the very personal and deep and close. 
Um, all of this causes us to fall on our face. And yet in that moment, um, Job doesn't lose that one tiny little bit of hope that ultimately God is good, that God is going to be there for him. Uh, we will talk more about Job in the days to come, but I think the best interpretive framework for Job for me is, is, uh, was written by Carl Jung. Carl Jung is not known for his biblical scholarship, um, his work with archetypes and other um, ways of understanding what it means to be human have had a huge influence on the world. If you've ever used the Myers-Briggs um, assessment for personality, you're, you're a Jungian. Um, you've studied Jung. And his little book, uh, The Answer to Job, that was published after his death, really grapples with this absurdity of Job, that ultimately Job is suffering. He's lost everything. God is an, a very direct cause of his loss and his grief and his suffering. And so the answer to Job that God gives at the end of the book, around chapter 38, um, is an inadequate answer, ultimately. But the only answer to Job happens much later. The only answer that makes sense to Job um, happens much later in an event in Jerusalem on a hillside called Skull Hill, Golgotha, where the Son of God is stretched out on a Roman torture device and tortured and executed and murdered there on that hillside. And ultimately, the answer to Job is that event, the crucifixion of Jesus, showing that ultimately God cannot really answer us in our suffering with words. Words do not work. Words do not make sense when we've lost everything. Ultimately, the only thing that can answer Job is that crucified son of God on a hillside who says, even if God doesn't have a good answer to my suffering, ultimately God knows what it's like to suffer as a human being on this planet. And that is the answer to Job. And I will challenge you now as we read Job together in the next couple of weeks, um, if that answer is good enough for you, or if God's answer in Job is good enough for you in your suffering, and what you're facing. Um, that is ultimately the question of our lives, is, is this answer adequate? Um, does God really answer Job's question that he constantly asks in this book? So I invite you into this experience of listening to Job, listening to ourselves as we consider and meditate on what it means to be a human being on this earth. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Today, the church remembers William Porcher DeBose. Um, this may be the last time you hear of him in the Episcopal Church feast calendar. Um, he will probably be removed uh, from this calendar, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. 
Um, he was, in fact, one of the most original and creative thinkers of the American Episcopal Church um, and spent most of his life as a professor at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, which is an Episcopal college and seminary uh, there that's there today. He was not widely traveled and not widely known until about the age of 56, when he published the first of several books on theology that made him well-respected, not only in this country, but also in England and France. He was born in 1836 in South Carolina to a wealthy and cultured Huguenot family. The Huguenots are basically the the Protestants of France. Uh, there was a huge number of people that embraced the Reformation that was happening in Europe, in France. Um, they were eventually called Huguenots, although they felt like they were just regular old Christians. Uh, and those Huguenots were severely persecuted, both by the uh, royal, royal uh, French government, which was profoundly Roman Catholic. And then during the French Revolution, they had a little bit of a peaceful moment and then were persecuted again. So a large number of Huguenots came to the United States. Many settled in Charleston, South Carolina. And there is a church in South Carolina in Charleston to this day that has a service in French um, about once a week or once a month. I can't remember. Um, as many of them became American Presbyterians. So the Presbyterian Church in America, in the United States, is um, partially from the French Huguenots. And that's where he was from. But he went to the University of Virginia. He acquired a fluent knowledge of Greek and other languages, which helped him lay the foundation for a profound understanding of the New Testament. His theological studies were begun in the Episcopal Seminary in Camden, South Carolina, and was ordained in 1861. So, you know, we all live by the chances of history. Um, we don't get to choose uh, fully. I know there's various ideas about that, but um, he happened to be born in a time when he was uh, coming of age, starting his profession in 1861 in South Carolina. Um, so if he were to look out of his window, he could probably see Fort Sumter, which is the beginning of the American Civil War, the locus of that war beginning. Um, he became an officer in the army, the Confederate army, and an army chaplain as well, as he was recently ordained. In the Confederate army, there were many chaplains, uh, many of them Episcopalian that served on, the, on that side of things. Um, and they were often given much larger responsibilities than just being a chaplain in the way that uh, Northern Union troops were form their chaplains. Many, the most famous is probably William Polk, who um, was an Episcopal bishop and chaplain, who also was a general that commanded um, divisions of troops. So on the Confederate side, many of the um, roles were very much um, conflated of chaplain and commander. Um, it is this... Um, this association with the Confederacy, also his um, enslavement of people of African descent um, before the Civil War, 
that causes um, people today to really reflect on whether William Porcher DeBose is somebody we should hold up as a hero for our discipleship, someone we can say is a good example of what it means to be a Christian um, in his time. We can play the card of he was a man of his times only so much in life. Um, In fact, there were many Christians at this time in the North and some in the South who knew that slavery was evil and a sin and needed to be done away with. And so his life on our calendar causes us to reflect on those questions, to ask those questions of, for ourselves and ask ourselves why. Why would we want him to be um, on our calendar still? What are the arguments that we might give and, and where do those come from inside us? Some of those arguments are about us um, as well, our heritage, our history. Um, so we need to ask the question whether William Porcher DeBose was, um, was good for the Episcopal Church in the long run or whether he was someone that led us away from the faith um, following Jesus. These are questions that not only we need to ask ourselves, we need to listen to the voices of others, especially the descendants of the people that William Porcher DeBose enslaved, and not only enslaved, but fought um, to enslave throughout the Civil War. Doctrine and Life were always in close conversation for DeBose. In a series of books, he probed the inner meanings of the Gospels, the Epistles of Paul, and the Epistle to the Hebrews. He treated life and doctrine as, dramatic, as a dramatic dialogue, fusing the best of contemporary thought and criticism with his own strong inner faith. The result was both personal and scriptural Catholic theology. He reflected as he acknowledged the great religious movements of the 19th century, the Tractarianism movement in Oxford, the Oxford movement as it's called, the liberalism of F.D. Maurice, and the scholarship of German intellectuals, and the evangelical spirit that was so pervasive in American Christianity at the time. The richness and complexity of DeBose's thought are not easily captured in a few words, but the following passage written shortly before his death in 1918 is a characteristic sample of his theology. God has placed forever before our eyes, not the image, but the very person of the spiritual person. We have not to ascend, we have not to ascend into heaven to bring him down, nor to descend into the abyss to bring him up. For he is with us and near us and in us. We have only to confess with our mouths that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead and raised us in him and we shall live. Um, one of the main reasons DeBose is, um, is on our calendar is because of his um, establishment in the post-war years of Sewanee, uh, the seminary there, and other um, institutions that really strengthened the Episcopal Church in those post-war years. And um, we are the product of that. The uh, Diocese of Texas was founded from the Southern Episcopal Church uh, mission from originally the Diocese of Louisiana and New Orleans, and then eventually, you know, from our own circles. But most of our clergy did come from Southern Episcopal churches, and many of them enslaved people of African descent as they moved to this area of central Texas, as did many people that lived here. Um, And so, you know, I think as modern Christians and contemporary Christians living in our time, knowing full well that the legacy of enslavement and the institution of slavery in the American South 
um, is still something that we are in conversation with and trying to understand how we can both acknowledge history and not uh, do away with it or bury our heads in the sand and say things didn't happen, um, but also to be faithful to our commitment as Christians to say um, that even though it's hard to know how God uh, spoke through a person like this, perhaps in the years that he was enslaving other people, um, it's hard to know how that works. It's a sort of a mystery um, that we also ask of the patriarchs and others who um, had very different ethics from people today, but also um, had a conversation with God that we should pay attention to. So that's the story of William Porcher DeBose. I invite you to read more about him and his influence on the American Episcopal Church that we are inheritors of. Um, and I think it's good to remember people like this and the complexity of their lives, the moral failures of their lives. Um, the thing about modern people, and I consider people from the Civil War era modern people in that we know a lot about them um, in ways that we don't know a lot about people from earlier times, um, is that um, we get to see everything they did and everything they didn't do in a very clear light. And it ought to make us humble to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing in our day and age, in our generation, um, that is actively harming other people? Um, there were people during these years that DuBose lived that were hotly debating the institution of slavery, the morality of it, um, and some were blinded to their own economic circumstances. Um, the fact that the entire economy depended on this forced labor and all other arguments that were used then. Uh, we sometimes use very similar arguments to justify the kinds of things that we do, unthinking, not really considering the consequences of the actions that we take. And so that's what it means to be a Christian, um, to ask ourselves those very hard questions and to be willing to listen to the people that have had the harm done to them about what should be done and how we remember. Our communion faith um, is centered around remembrance. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, Jesus says to his disciples. So remembering is a very Christian endeavor and we ought to remember rightly, remember correctly, um, not um, covering up or sweeping things under the rug, but ultimately um, really remembering clearly um, as we remember the history of our church and hope for the future where these sorts of systemic injustices are not part of our faith, um, that, are, that we have um, made amends and healed and reconciled. Almighty God, you gave to your servant William Porcher DeBose special gifts of grace to understand the scriptures and to teach the truth as, is, as it is in Jesus Christ. Grant that by his teaching, we may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray a prayer for peace. O God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you as eternal life and to serve you as perfect freedom. Defend us, your humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in your defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries, the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And given uh, William Porcher DeBose's 
um, the, the issues and questions that his life brings up for us. We pray a prayer. Um, um, for the oppressed. Look with pity, O Heavenly Father, upon the people in this land and around the world who live with injustice, terror, disease, and death as their constant companions. Have mercy upon us. Help us to eliminate our cruelty to these, our neighbors. Strengthen those who spend their lives establishing equal protection of the law and equal opportunity for all. And grant that every one of us may enjoy a fair portion of the riches of this land. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And we pray a colic for mission. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant the people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh. And hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>